stay calm, don't panic. You got this. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. This is Chris Roby. And this is Carly Duke. How are you doing, Carly? I'm doing great. What about you, Chris? I'm great, and I'm excited about today. I'm just going to kind of get right to it because um, Teen Lifeline, uh, the organization that produces this, I guess, yeah? Yeah, sure. Uh, We do support groups for students in crisis in the Tarrant County, Fort Worth, Texas area. And one of the groups that we've done for a long time, and before I even came on board, is at a a local drug rehab in Fort Worth. It's publicly funded um, as part of a company called MHMR, which we'll talk about a little bit in this interview. But this is our like one year-round group that we do. And so 365 days a year, this facility has 16 adolescent young men who are in and substance abuse treatment. And so they asked us to come and do a weekly group there. And most of our groups are in the school year. So whenever summer hits or there's a break, there's not groups, but this particular place, we're always there. And there's always 16 boys there. And I tell you, it's one of those really great places to do groups. Um, and I tell people all the time, it's like my, like my biggest joy or biggest pain every week. <laughs> Just depending on yeah. how the group goes. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, these are young men who are there for a reason. They've right. life has really dealt them a difficult hand and there are times where I'll come in and things are just not going well. And, you know, despite my best efforts, we have a really rough group, but there's some times I've been in there where it's kind of tattooed in my mind, these moments in time where these incredible breakthroughs happen, where these young men figure out, man, I've got some major changes that need to happen, not only just within me, but in my systems. And so I'm excited about this because this, these groups that we do on a weekly basis, they're connected us with our, um, our guest today. Right. Yeah. I have a whole lot of respect. We're talking to Sarah Kaler today and I really respect her because she can hold her own with those boys. Yeah, she's, and, she's pretty tough. <laughs> yeah, she is pretty tough, but she knows her stuff too. So she was a great resource on substance abuse and especially drugs is what we talk about mainly today, mm-hmm. um, drug abuse. But um, she was a great interview and great that she took time to slip away from her office for a little bit and come talk to us. And I think, you know, Sarah, Sarah is a great example of why we were, we wanted to start this podcast because we, we talk to people who you might have seen or know about who may have uh, might have like a big online presence or um, you know speak speak a lot in public places. But Sarah is one of those who you might not know much about because a lot of the work she does is behind the scenes, creating programs, frameworks, uh, spaces for for young men and women to recover from substance abuse, especially teenagers. And a lot of times we take for granted that these facilities have to exist because teenagers get addicted to drugs. Right. And um, there, there needs to be places where they can find respite, some time away to be able to reflect upon uh, and get the help that they need to overcome. And so that was the hardest part for me to wrap my mind about around when I started doing groups there is that there are teenagers who chemically are now dependent on drugs. And it seems like that's such a young age to have that happen. But Sarah walks us through some of that. And I, I really, I, I love the, the direction she comes from. And I think you'll hear a unique perspective on substance abuse and what you can do as a parent. I think she shoots pretty straight about some things. Um, or parent or anyone who does work with a teenager. So I really hope you enjoy today. This is a real thrill to do this. Yeah, I hope you enjoy us talking to Sarah Kaler today. Do not panic. 
Uh, Sarah, welcome. Really glad that you're here. Uh, Sarah is the program manager uh, of TYRC. Uh, it's also called the Youth Campus now. TYRC is the Texas, is it Tarrant or Texas? Tarrant Youth Recovery Campus. Tarrant Youth Recovery Campus. Is that still the what it's called generally, or is it is the name change? Every time I've been over there, it's been something a little bit different. That I've- um, we've gone through some name changes in the last couple of years. We are still TYRC. Uh-huh. Uh, the confusion became with TYC with the Tarrant uh, Youth Commission okay. or Texas Youth Commission rather, um, and not getting us confused with. The juvenile jail system. Okay. That's where the campus came from. Okay. Um, with the recent changes, the whole facility is the youth campus. We okay. serve youth on all different levels. Um, and, and specifically, the uh, substance abuse side is the youth campus. Okay. So. Gotcha. All right. So tell us a little bit about uh, your, uh, I guess, educational background, your licensure, um, kind of, I guess, the letters behind your name. <laughs> Why are we talking to you today? (laughs) I have my bachelor's and master's both in rehabilitation studies and counseling from UNT. Um, I am a licensed chemical dependency counselor, a certified rehabilitation counselor, and um, and currently a licensed professional counselor intern. Um, Been at at MHMR for about six years. MHMR is? As a... Organization is a company. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been at the campus now for five years. Okay. Um, I have worked residential at the campus. I've worked outpatient, done little odds and end programming mm-hmm. positions. Um, and just at this point, I'm the program manager and I run both programs with the residential and the outpatient side. Okay. Great. And for those that don't know what MHMR stands for, what is that actual organization? What do those letters stand for? At this point in the game, my health, my resource. Okay. So that's another name change. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, per the state, mental retardation is no longer to be used. Okay. Um, the state will not fund us. Okay. If we utilize that. Uh, it is now, you know, our old MR side is now IDD. Gotcha. So – We've talked a lot about changes now, mm-hmm. <laughs> how there's name changes and they re- they reflect current just attitude changes towards uh, mental health services and, and treatment and recovery. We talked a little bit about that before we even pushed record. Um, just just kind of in the big picture in general, talk about the some of the attitude shifts you are seeing uh, when it comes to treatment uh, recovery uh, with students, uh, and then maybe not even necessarily just with students, but in general. Uh, when it, and, and, and you can talk a little bit about, um, the shift with the DSM four, DSM five, and, um, just trying to draw, draw the curtain back a little bit for those who are listening to this to kind of know, um, and we'll get into more of the specifics here a little bit, but just in general, how are some of the attitudes shifting in mental health? We are definitely becoming more, uh, trauma sensitive mm-hmm. would be the correct way to put that. Sh- trying to take those stigmas that that society has placed on mental health disorders and substance use disorders um, instead of a negative light that it's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, just because there's something wrong, whether it's a hidden disability or an actual physical disability, it's okay. It's okay that, you know, somebody has that and it's what can we do to help overcome um, these barriers? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot with the DSM four, Versus a DSM five, uh, it's again it's that shift of 
it's not so much a abuse problem or a dependence. It's you just have a disorder, mm-hmm. you know, substance use disorder or even um, mental health disorders. It's no longer, again, it's it's trying to get away from that stigma mm-hmm. with society and that, you know, you're mm-hmm. different because of bipolar. You're different because, you know, you use cocaine or, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's that shift in just the attitude and how we approach the clients. Gotcha. Well, for students that actually come to TYRC, you said earlier, you have inpatient and outpatient. What's the difference and what do the students look like depending on which program they go into? I'll start with the difference of the programs with outpatient and, and yeah, inpatient. Mm-hmm. Um, outpatient, we have our, it's a 10 to 12 week program. It's how it's set up. It's very uh, less rigid. It's uh, evenings in the group. The client will come about 10 to 12 weeks weekly, once a week for group. And then the families will come at the same time, just in a different group. You know, so it's families by themselves and clients by themselves. Um, they receive some individuals depending on severity and family sessions um, individually as well. And it's just trying to help them stay in their community, stay in their primary environment and receiving whether it be anything from intervention all the way to, um, you know, prevention. We also have a residential program. It is set up for a six-week program. Um, it's on a level system, so each week they receive their levels. They're progressing in treatment behaviorally, um, therapeutically, clinically, in all aspects. We give them a home pass that they can earn after about four weeks of being there um, where they have the opportunity to go back into their primary environment just for a night, see how things go, try to test themselves and apply the, the things they have learned in hopes that they can maintain that. Um, we do transition them back into outpatient once they have completed residential or inpatient treatment just to, um, again, give them that long-term ability to help with their sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, How long is that, the the outpatient after after the inpatient treatment? It's the same. It's about 10 to 12 weeks, depending. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of our clients, the majority of who we see are juvenile probation uh, kids, whether they walk in the door or we actually also are set up to assess them at uh, juvenile detention on Kimbo Road. It determines at that point what their recommendation is, what as a clinician, what do they need you know, for treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they usually when they walk in the door, depending on however they get their probation or school or just families are noticing a problem. We try to start them out outpatient, the least restrictive level of care, give them an opportunity. Um, if we notice that they're still, you know, continuing to use or they're still having issues at that point as a team, we'll discuss residential and the next level of care. I guess. So you, you said probation is a big, a big reason that, that they, uh, that they get there. Um, I guess I, I'm, I'm curious on, what what kind of substance are, are, do you all t- usually deal with the most? Um, is that, and I'm sure that's somewhat of a, of a moving target sometimes, you know, depending on what's going on. But um, I know, is it, and I for the listener, I, I I lead groups here each week, um, and so I see these boys all the time. But I don't I don't always know why they're there, and that's part of what we do in our groups. So we kind of we don't really talk about that a whole lot. We talk about how to move forward, uh, but you know. For for a student that winds up in a in a treatment program like like yours, what's what's typically 
um, the substance that they are abusing the most. Marijuana. Marijuana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say about 90 to 95% is marijuana. Okay. Um, there are other substances that they've either tried or maybe they won't admit to. They could even be addicted to. I, it, it, it is, I've seen a trend with different areas. Um, okay. That is our main issue. And to me, I feel like on the adolescent side, it's more of a lifestyle versus necessarily just a, I need this drug to survive and to function. Mm. So I need the lifestyle that goes with that. Right. The money, the fame. Hmm. Right. Interesting. So talking about this youth, what age do you typically see them come in? Or what age or range of ages do you see them battling addiction? Well, <clears throat> we accept clients. You know, it, on the surface level, it's 13 to 17. However, I we've had 12-year-olds come in and we've had 18, 19-year-olds mm-hmm. come in. Um, depending on if they're in school, I mean, we can actually accept anyone up to 21 years old if they're still in school. Um, and it's really a range. I see a lot of 15, 16-year-olds, the kind of the average on the age. Um, but it's hard, again, to give them that addiction diagnosis, if you will, right. just because it is kind of, for them, sometimes it's it's such a, what they know, mm-hmm. what they've learned, what they just no, that's their normal to them um, versus maybe an adult where they have moved away from home or they've, you know, experienced and become more mature and make their own kind of decisions and choices. Uh, so it's a little different on that aspect. It's, it's, it's hard for even the majority of the clients in there to say, yeah, I'm addicted to weed because they're not even quite sure what that even fully means just yet. Right. Do you see, is there an effect have you seen if they come in younger of long-term drug use or how does that affect? Like if you start using drugs at an earlier age, do you see it affect them longer term or is it easier for them to break those habits or whatever that looks like that lifestyle that you're talking about? And does age have an effect on that? You know, I don't think it really does. What I see is that the younger they come in, the longer I'm going to see them there. It's almost a revolving door. Um, I think I see more if they come in 13, 14 years old, there's, there's definite more, maybe more consequence, especially in the, the legal system and, uh, even in the, in their adult. I mean, you know, it's, they turn 18, they get off probation, maybe through juvenile, but it's not long that they start getting in trouble on the adult side. Right. So it's no specific age. Um, it's unfortunate. Our success rate isn't that high. It's kind of a one out of every eight kids will, be successful. Um, age isn't really a, a determinant factor for that either. I'm glad to hear you say, say the one out of eight stat because I'll hear uh, ads on the radio for different treatment centers where they talk about 90, 95% success rates. And I'm like, and I kind of eye roll a little <laughs> bit because I, because I'm wondering by what standards are they measuring success? Right. Um, would probably be the big thing. Um, what would you attribute uh, a one to eight success rate to? I mean, you know, being a part of your facility, you guys do great work over there and it's not, um, I wouldn't think it's because of the quality of the work. There's obviously more going on there, um, that would bring a kid back in. Cause we, we, there, there is a revolving door. There's students I see, you know, time after time after time. I'm like, Oh man, you're back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you know, I I love seeing them, but I hate that that's where I have to see them, Absolutely. you know? Uh, but what, what would you attribute the one to eight to? I mean, like, like what, 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 
why is there such a low success rate for um, full recovery? And then I have a follow-up question after that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. No. Morning. Or, yeah. Yes. Just a, uh-huh. a reminder. That reminds me. Um, yeah. The, the concept of addiction, the disease concept, the biopsychosocial. You know, we have the biological side, the psychological side, and the um, social side. I think that in itself, to me, kind of describes, kind of help defines why the the adolescents aren't as successful as possibly the adults. I can see adults being successful. There's a lot more resources for the adults. Mm-hmm. Adolescents, there's not. I mean, there are only two other treatment facilities in this area. And a lot of times our clients will kind of bounce back and forth depending on payer sources and funding information. Um, but it's that after treatment, they still go back to their home environment. They still hang out with the same friends. They still do the people, places, and things that they can't change as maybe an adult can change. And that's the biggest biggest thing when we talk about recovery is those people, places, and things. If you can't avoid them, well, how can you cope with them? How can you deal with them? A lot of times they're at a spot too where – they can't even really identify yet their emotions and their feelings. And so, again, when you have those learned behaviors that – or even the, um, you know, just innate kind of mental behaviors that leads them to, I need something to help me. And this is what I know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's even that much harder. Right. So my follow-up question is, what is success? Uh, like, like, so the, the one – who you would call successful? Is there a certain measure or is there a certain standard or is it just sobriety yeah. long-term, mm-hmm. you know, um, at this point in the game, I've been being there long enough. I have seen kids come through and, uh, 18, 19, 20 years old, they're successful. They have jobs. They don't, they haven't continued in the legal system. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we try to really enforce on the adolescents and reiterate that you have an opportunity as a juvenile. You know, you're um, even if you are on probation and even if you have six felonies at this point, they don't have to follow you. If you can just make some changes right now in your life. Um, And there are some that can be successful with those changes, but it's a lot of work with the adolescents, a lot of work with the family. It's a lot of work with their environment. You know, it doesn't matter where you live or how much, you know, you make or dr- drugs are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's just learning how to cope with that and mm-hmm. deal with those. Right. Right. So it sounds like the, the, the younger, the, I mean, you, you'd said this, but just the more that I'm kind of getting the picture here of a middle schooler dealing with this, it's, I wouldn't say it's hopeless, but man, that's, it's hard. That's a really difficult because, you know, because what, what is, what is in a student's power? To change their environment at that age. I mean, what, what can right. they do? Right. Um, I mean, do you feel like there is anything that, I mean, as, as you guys talk through and they're, you know, they're going back to their home. Um, what are some strategies that you share with a student to say, you know, to change their environment, you know, if their dad's, you know, smoking or, or, or there's some kind you know, something in the home that's really dysfunctional, what can a kid do? It reminds me of the specific client. This client I had a few years back, um, he really wanted to stay clean, really wanted to stay clean. Had a very difficult time, continued relapse, 
And I remember having this this discussion, this exact discussion with him and his home environment. And he was able to really identify and process with me, him and his mom's relationship and um, kind of her, you know, in, in his terms, she's irrational and very hard. And, and the, before treatment, it was, she was the reason I used, she was the reason I continued, you know, to get in trouble. When he was in treatment, it was the, you can't change your mom, but you can change you. Mm-hmm. And really focusing on changing your behaviors, your reactions. Um, and, and that's kind of what that question led me to is thinking about that situation. But overall, we really try to incorporate just the family portion of it and really and try to just build up that communication and that trust again to mm-hmm. where the parents can help the clients and, the, you know, mm-hmm. um, overall to help them. Mm-hmm. I want to dive a little more into that because what can parents do to minimize the risk for their children? So even maybe before you get into that or before they start using drugs, what can the family do? What can the parents do to minimize that risk? Before they start using or just in general? Maybe both. So maybe before they start using and then after, if they have a child that's going through a treatment program or something, what can they do at that point too? So maybe that's a twofold question. (laughs) Well, I think, I don't think there's a lot that any parent can do to really prevent drug use from happening. Um, Peer pressure is hard, especially middle school, especially high school. You want to fit in. You want to be cool. You want to smoke weed. You want to drink alcohol. Um, I think that that, and I, I hate to make it sound okay, but at some level, it's a, it's a, an acceptance of the, of the parents. Mm-hmm. My kid might experiment with drugs and alcohol. Okay, so what do I need to do to help so it doesn't lead into further and greater mm-hmm. things? Well, let's talk about it. Let's process it. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, you're a horrible child or that you're no good or, you know, all the things that you're doing wrong, but let's, let's talk about some of the consequences. And I've really, especially with adolescents, it's been more of, tell me what you think might happen if you continue, you know, tell me about your friends and what you've seen and trying to just really open up that line of communication. That's been the biggest thing that if a kid comes to a parent's, you know, I, I've used or yeah, you know, I kind of like it and, I don't know what to do or, you know, and the parents not like, I can't believe you. Here you go again, you know, Mm -hmm. versus tell me about it. What's going on? What's, what's leading you to that, to Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. Yeah. So being able to keep that communication open to have a discussion and absolutely to get help as well. Now, after they've started treatment or they realize that they are using drugs or addicted to drugs, what can the family do then to help them in that treatment process? It, again, it's that communication piece. Okay. I, I really feel that it's, you know, relapse is a part of recovery. Some parents have the, that that's unacceptable. Well, but it is what it is. And it's, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. And it's helped. The, it's the helping the parent see that not only can you be supportive to the client, but also get help for yourself as well. You know, seek those, those Al-Anon uh, meetings or, you know, those those supportive kind of outside group meetings to help 
with their support as well to help support their, you know, right their their child. And a lot of times I do see a family trend, you know, with um, drug use, especially with adolescents. I mean, I'm seeing kids starting smoking weed at nine years old, hmm. eight years old. I heard six at one point. I'm like, somebody had to give that to that child, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. Um, even at nine, 12, 13. Yeah. I, let me, let me, let me try that. Mm-hmm. So obviously, and usually that's within the home environment. Maybe it's even cousins or stepbrothers or, you know, older family members. Um, and it's such a family situation. It's such a family dynamic that's affected. Mm-hmm. It's just really trying to bring that back together and even calling out the parents and saying, Hey, you know, do you want this cycle to continue? Do you realize your kid's a sponge? Mm-hmm. You know, do you, is this what you want to see for them as well? Right. So you talked about the consequences a little bit, and obviously there's the legal side of dealing with, you know, um, uh, substance abuse. But um, talk a little bit about the uh, the developmental side, about, you know, and we can really talk more, really more around marijuana since that seems to be the, the big thing. And I've gotten into – I've, I've gotten roped into many debates from with middle school kids about <laughs> the merits of smoking pot. <laughs> yes, and I, I, don't, I don't do that anymore because I, I don't. You don't it, do pot anymore. You that don't that that and uh, <laughs> and get into these debates because it's an incredible waste of time. It is, uh, but you know, there's there's a lot a lot of research out there. We're going to link some of the research you sent me sure. uh, that's uh, specific to our area. But uh, for for a student who is uh, actively using marijuana at you know in that meaty developmental age of you know fourteen to eighteen or even you know down to twelve or thirteen, what are they risking? It's a definite interference of development in any drug, whether it be marijuana, alcohol. They always say in recovery um, and 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 really in addiction in in general that you are the age you started. Hmm. It's like your brain stops. At that point. Um, and then once you become clean, it does catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes about six to 18 months for your brain to really kind of heal after you uh, discontinue use. Mm. Just, again, the chemicals in your brain and the rewiring and such. Um, the marijuana debate's hard. Mm-hmm. It is very hard. I definitely have had that debate as well um, with several kids. It's well, you know. It's God put it here and it's legalized and here and it's what have you. I tend to educate them more about marijuana itself. Well, I mean, it's legal in Colorado, so why can't I, you know, smoke it here? Well, regardless, even if it was legal here, there would still be an age limit. It would still be mm-hmm. illegal for you. That's kind of how I, how I counteract those arguments because it's at this point, and especially with the probation side, you're on probation. The main risk that they can that they ever really say is the um, the the possible health effects with the lungs and the smoking, and it's still the chemicals. Mm-hmm. You know, there hasn't been anything just clear as day after all of this time with marijuana that says this is what it does to you. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. or maybe cocaine does this, or heroin does that. There's not much with marijuana. Mm-hmm. So it is it is a hard debate, especially with those middle school kids, mm-hmm. but it it's I see more physical consequences from 
the things, the inhalants, the mm-hmm. the triple C's, which is the uh, it's an over-the-counter cough, cold, and congestion. congestion. Mm-hmm. And you literally have to take enough to overdose to get that high. Mm-hmm. And kids will do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or the K2, because they don't want to get caught right. smoking marijuana. The synthetic stuff, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That stuff's really dangerous. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I see more negative effects, like physically present, with those versus the marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um but earlier you kind of talked about a lifestyle that comes mm-hmm. around with marijuana and are there negative connotations that's, or effects that come with that? And that's exactly where it comes more from. It's it's more getting that and acquiring that. Maybe it's selling, maybe it's um it's the committing illegal activities and right. engaging in those illegal activities to get that drug. You know, and that's I think to kind of wrap around back to the family side too, when the, you know, how can the family help? Well, if you see that the kid's not going to school, if you see that the kid's starting to get in trouble, like you see the interference, mm-hmm. staying out all night, running away, coming up with things that they shouldn't come up with, like, you know, a new gaming system or mm-hmm. clothes, and you're like, I didn't buy that. <laughs> right. Those are those warning signs too that the parents can see and hey, tell me how you got that. Um, that's that's that lifestyle that that easy money and right. hustling and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the gang life that I see a lot in Fort Worth. Well, I appreciate your honest answer on that because um, that's not the first person I've heard that from, that there's just a lot of question marks. There is. There. And, 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 I, and I don't think that's, you know, I think people who are strongly on one side or the other will use that as an opportunity to say, see, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't think that's what that means at all. I think that means that's, you know, we don't know. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and I think that, and I, and you, you might know better than I do. I know that the, just the, the hard research is pretty young on this. It hasn't been around very long and not enough time has passed to really know what these things do to us physically. No, I mean, it was, what was it? The twenties, thirties when reefer came out. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little later, forties. I don't remember. I don't don't quote me in the year. I wasn't around, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Um, but that was the we don't know what it does, so we think it creates psychosis. So we're going to make it legal. And there's that, you know, uh, or illegal rather. And then there's that hemp side of it and the economy with the hemp portion of it. Um, I think they're realizing that the only difference that I have seen in the last not personally seen, but that I've researched and read last 50 to 60 years. The only thing that's changed has been the increase of the actual THC level. It's, it's, it's more potent mm-hmm. than it used to be. Right. Um, and they have done other, uh, the, the dabs, which is the liquid, or I'm sorry, the wax of the THC. It's very concentrated. So where, okay, marijuana, when my parents smoked it in the 60s and 70s. Was it maybe a 3 4% THC level? The marijuana they're getting on the streets now is anywhere between a 9 to 15% THC level. Mm-hmm. And those dabs are at about a 70 to 80% concentrated THC level. Mm-hmm. Um, and even still, again, it's that there's no physical, you know, overdoses. There's no, it, it maybe can create, you know, anxiety or panic or irregular heartbeat, but nothing you know, like a heroin overdose, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just become more intense. It's been the, the biggest kind of right. hard research. Right. Mm-hmm. So going back to kind of talking to people who are helping teenagers, whether that's a teacher 
or a parent or a youth minister, what's one of the first helpful things they can do if they start seeing, like you said, some warning signs of if they're skipping school or if they're getting in trouble, but when they finally confront that student or that teenager and realize that they're using drugs, what are some of the first steps that they can take to help that teenager? Engaging with them, talking with them. You know, hey, I, I, I see you're, you've been missing a lot of school. You know, tell me about that. What's been going on? You know, you seem a lot more tired today or you seem, I, I see some, some changes in you. Let's, let's talk about those. Okay. At what point would you recommend them seek other treatment, whether that's counseling or whether that's coming to a place like TYRC? At what point do they need to say, okay, we need help outside of our family, outside of what we can do for them? I think it's a hard thing to gauge. Um, it really depends on the family because it depends on if the family's like, nope, there's going to be no marijuana use. They are going directly to treatment. And they come to me and I'm like, you've smoked once. I mean, I can definitely <laughs> do some intervention. You know, let's, we can work a small program. You know, we have that flexibility. Um, and then there's some families that it's like, oh, it's fine. It's just weed. I mean, I smoke weed and I, and I know there's consequences, but it's fine. And they don't ever come. Mm-hmm. So, you know, or the probation is, in, uh, that's right. Is forcing them to come. <laughs> she's getting get animated over here. I know. Right? Yeah. yeah I'm starting to wake up here. Um, so it's, and even if there's that negative reinforcement, it, it's still, oh, why? It's just marijuana. So it, sometimes I get more of the question of, uh, is it ever the wrong time? You know, or. What qualifies? Well, I mean, again, I mean, if you've smoked a couple of times, we can do some intervention. We can do some basic just kind of social skills, communication skills, looking at your support system, classic intervention stuff Mm -hmm. uh, or prevention stuff. Or if it gets to that point that we do need to intervene, then, you know, but anybody that walks through that door or or calls to make an appointment, we're going to see. We're going to determine, you know, where they're at in their life and what they've kind of given up for their their use. Right. So is it, is it as simple as that? Uh, and I'm thinking about access to services. Yes. Um, just yeah. give, you, give you a holler and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Not only, uh, with all my referral sources, all my contacts, anybody just in general, um, it's, here's a front desk number call. If there's anything that you need specifically call me and I will do what I can. You know, maybe you can't make that 10 o'clock appointment cause you work. I could probably work something out for 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I can't come to groups during the week because, you know, I have maybe a GED program or something. Let's set you up individually instead of groups. Let's work around so they can get the treatment. Um, there is a 211 line for help and resource that's 24-7. We have a crisis care line as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these things that, unfortunately, I don't know if the public really fully knows but it's kind of, especially the the two one one. It's it's a all kind of all stop, all place stop for anything and everything mm-hmm. that one might need. Mm-hmm. So is that that's pretty typical? Most metropolitan areas are going to have something like that. I would um, assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big thing is is knowing that there's that resource there typically in, in in your in your community where you can you can call and and set something up mm-hmm. um, and. Um, and hopefully those, those centers are, are able to look at, you know, if, if you smoked once and like, all right, we're not going to, you know, 
put you in treatment for 60 days for that. Right. Um, and to be able to look at that as well. So kind of to wrap up, um, we want to ask you two different questions and I'll ask you the first one so I don't overwhelm you all at once, but what is the most important thing that you want the listener to hear from you today? <laughs> I know that's a kind of a big question, but <laughs> if the listener or the audience, what's one thing that you want them to take away from this? With adolescents, even though there is a lack of resource in this this region, in this area, um, it's very important to just continue with, with, if there's a problem, let's try to get a hold of it. Let's try to help these adolescents to help them succeed. I mean, they are our future. Mm-hmm. And it saddens me with the different law changes, whether it be truancy or even through juvenile probation. Um, I don't feel like that they are failing them necessarily. I feel like us as a community is are failing these adolescents Mm. because of the lack of resource, because of the lack of mentor programs, the lack of things that aren't available as they would be for the adults. Mm. Um, For me, that's been the biggest kind of, I want people to be aware that this starts very early on. And if we don't stop it now, it'll continue. Mm-hmm. What can we do to stop it? How can we help? How can we assist? Right. Right. And then the last big question we have for you today is what's a good question that you can ask a student who's going through addiction or who is using drugs or alcohol or any sort of substance like that? What's going on? As simple as that. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I see this and this and this. I mean, you good? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Talk to me. You know, give yeah. me, give, let me help you. What's going on? Mm-hmm. What's going on? I like that a lot. So just something simple where it's going to open up some conversation. Yeah. Well, Sarah, this has been great. Like I've I've learned I've learned I'm, I'm there each week, and um, I don't get to hear all this stuff. So this has been great for me to hear, and um, really appreciate your time on that. The Don't Panic Podcast is produced by Teen Lifeline. Your hosts are Chris Roby and Carly Duke with special support from Ricky Lewis. The music you heard today comes from Under the Chandeliers. You can find them on SoundCloud or Spotify. If you want to check out today's notes and resources, visit our website, don'tpanicpodcast.org. Or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram at Don't Panic Talk. Finally, here's a word from our sponsor, Lubbock Christian University. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't panic. You've got this. Hi, my name is Becca, and all my professors at Lubbock Christian University know it. I never realized what a difference it would make attending a smaller university. I've traveled the world, and I've had leadership opportunities you can only find at a place like LCU. I know that my experience at Lubbock Christian University is what gave me the edge to be hired right after graduation. Believe. Belong, be blue. That's Lubbock Christian University. Panic, you will not.